Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen. And um, I will say we're really excited uh, about our guest, but we are doubly so today mm-hmm. uh, because we're welcoming back one of our very first guests. Can't wait to talk to Ali Miller. Welcome, Ali, back to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me back after the first time. <laughs> yeah, it's over a year ago. I had a look on the um, the thing and it was like May, I think, of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so has anything happened to you since then? Uh, what's been going on? Nothing much. Um, it's, it's been a really quiet year. It's been very quiet and there's been no chaos at all. Apart from I did do a thing last month. Um, I oh. released a book last month and it, it got a little bit busy. So um, you did. Yeah. Let me tell you about my book. It's called The Last Days. I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, one of the things that I was thinking about before we did this interview was I bet you're I mean, you must be pleased to talk about it, but in another sense, you must be a bit fed up with um, going over it over and over again. Um, is that true, or do you, do you just love to talk about it? Um, a little bit of both. I, when yeah. I'm really tired in the evenings, I'm like, oh my goodness, I've got to talk about the book again. But then I think when, you know, I've already spent three years in it. It's taken three years mm-hmm. to write. It took that yeah. long, you know, the whole writing, editing, everything process took a long time. And I think when you've lived in something for that long, it's actually, it's quite a relief to be able to talk about it. Because for a long time, I couldn't really talk about the specifics of it either. Yeah, of so, mm. yeah, it's really good. Um, and sometimes you'll get an interviewer who focuses on different things. And then that means that you're pulling out different bits because thematically it's quite rich as well. Mm-hmm. So it's been really nice. Um, I am physically very, very tired because it's been yeah. intense. Um, and for all of the press, there's so much that you have to do. But I, I am, I'm really enjoying it, and it feels amazing to have it out and to get the response of readers as well, because that's the bit I've been looking forward to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean, do you want to just tell us a little bit about what your what that's been like? I, I'm sure most of us will never get to um, release a book, um, so it's it's an experience that I think. A lot of us are curious about and uh, what that experience is like. Um, so, could you try? I mean, you're a wordsmith, so um, describe to us what it's like to uh, to release a book and uh, and what that experience is like. Well, I always think the book is a little bit like an iceberg that just represents a tiny bit of the work that goes into it. So when The Right sold, I started working with my editor and we worked really, really closely on it. Um, And that took, I'm trying to think, we started working properly about October 2000. And then I submitted the final, final draft a year after that. It was October 2021. Between that, there was lots of other drafts and there was lots of toing and froing. Then there was an extensive legal read, which was probably the most difficult part of the book. Um, and then we started with cover design and publicity plans and all of that takes a long time as well. I think the cover was revealed. So there were like several back and forwards about the cover. We couldn't get the, um, it took ages to get the actual subtitle font right. There was something not quite right with it. So there was loads of like actual like emails about that. And then I think we revealed the cover in February, it might have been. Um, But even for that, there was like so much behind the scenes that we had to plan, we had to plan the social media, how it was going to happen. So loads goes into a book. I have been busy with promotion since about 
February and then the book was released on the 14th of July. So for instance, I went into Penguin, they have this incredible production studio and it did, it felt like a complete dream to be in there. I read my audiobook over the course of two and a half days. I narrated it in this beautiful, like soundproof studio with double doors between me and the producer. And that was one of the best experiences I think of my life. I loved it. And the great thing was, was you never get to see reactions to your book in real time whereas when I read it it was as if I was reading it to him and he hadn't read the book so like after some chapters he'd be like yes yes you're going to escape and then he'd be like oh no you've not and then someone would come in and he'd be like look I do not trust this guy he is not a good man and so it was brilliant at the end of everything to get that feedback and um the week before that I'd gone into the studios as well And I recorded a film that is on Penguin's YouTube, which has had like over 30,000 views, which is just, that broke my head as well. So I recorded that about the moment that I left the witnesses. And I also did an interview for their website then, and I did a photo shoot too. So that was really intense. And those are all the kinds of things that when you're launching a book that, well, not everybody does it, but you know, that's, that's kind of one of the prerequisites is that you'll kind of dedicate yourself to doing this Mm. publicity, but it does take months. It takes a long time to try and generate excitement and a buzz around a book as well. It takes a long time to engage the press. I have a brilliant publicist who I worked with and I'm working with. Um, We went up to Edinburgh as well. We did a little proof tour dropping off the book in Glasgow and in Edinburgh and in the borders because they're all bits that are in the book. So that was brilliant, you know, so there's all these things that go in. And so the book just feels like almost this tiny fraction of the work. Yeah. But as soon as, so I did the interview with the Sunday Times and that went live on the 3rd of July. And that had the first extract from the book and it's an abridged extract, but it still gives the kind of, it tells the story of what happened. Mm. And as soon as that went live, I had messages from people saying, Um, that they thought it was just them, that they'd felt so isolated. And then they're reading this and they realise that it's Mm. happened to other people and they felt less isolated, they felt less alone. And immediately any fears that I had about writing the book, about whether I should have written it, kind of the the sort of personal loyalty to my mother or to my family, Mm. they completely dissipated because that was the point at which I realised it was the right book to write and that it was going to affect people and I just get messages almost every day at the moment from people who've read it and people who've been affected Um, and I guess that's just going to grow as more people read the book as well and so that has been the thing that's made all of that work um, completely feel like it's paid off because it's just incredible to hear from people and to know that it's reaching people even people who um weren't witnesses who grew up in other kind of fundamental denominations it's really touched them but also people outside saying oh my goodness that's what happens um Mm-hmm. And to have had messages from teachers, from librarians, from different people who are involved with children as well makes a huge difference. It's great to hear that people, not just ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, are reading it. You know, it's um, it, it's it's important to get it out there, isn't it? That's part of, I guess, uh, why it's so important to have books like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to say straight up, I mean, we've spoken on email and, um, and on, on Twitter and stuff. Um, you know, I... I I absolutely love the book. I actually um, got the audio book as well as the, I've got my hard copy, obviously, but um, I also got the audio book. And um, I was really pleasantly surprised when um, it was you reading it, because often authors complain that they weren't allowed to read their own book, which I think is a shame. Um, And it was just so brilliant to hear your voice talking in the way that you do in the book and um, beautifully read, beautifully written. of course, it, it makes you angry, um, happy, sad, and all of the, the things which I guess a good art should do. Um, I think like, like other books, um, Ali, I would say um, you kind of lulled me into a bit of a false sense of security at the beginning because it was kind of childhood memories. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, I remember that book. And oh, yeah, I remember what that was like. And yeah, some of it is quite damaging, but 
on the other hand, it's a bit like an old shoe, isn't it, that you just sort of recognise. Um, oh. And then you went into, you kind of kicked me in the gut because you talked about some horrific experiences that you had and that was uh, a real kind of change for me of, of pace and, and it really hit me quite hard. I, th- I think as a man as well, reading some of the things you, that you went through. So we'll, we'll perhaps talk about some of those things. Did you have, when you were at the start of the process, deciding to write the book, did you have, were there key moments um, in your memory that you wanted, that specifically like made you want to write the book or was it something that you grow over time or... That's a brilliant question. So when I first wrote the book, I did not have a clue how to do it. And Mm -hmm. with most things that I'd written before that, I was really meticulously planned and Mm -hmm. felt this need to completely control the story. Mm -hmm. And in the first draft, I just didn't know how to do it. So I wrote a first draft really quickly. I think it took about three weeks to write super quickly. And I've never looked at it since. i think it's somewhere on the hard drive but who knows I'm not going to go in search of that but doing (laughs) that did exactly what you said so it basically made me think what's what's this story about and as soon as I got the title The Last Days which has two sort of functions I wanted a title that any ex-witness or witness could identify the book as being a witness book because The Last Days was just all over everything the witnesses are ever told. So I thought, right, as soon as I got that it was called The Last Days, that was when I had something that I could hang the book on. So it became in my head that it was about The Last Days, it was about the fear of the end, but simultaneously it was about me and my mum's last days, everything that led to the final part of the book, which then made me start drawing out memories that filled that kind of function in that story but what I also wanted to do was I always had in my mind that I did want it to be an expose of what life inside the witnesses is like and I wanted it to be that although these were personal memories they were things like Stephen said that you can nod along with so when I was drawing out memories I tried my very best to make sure that they were things that other people would be able to identify with so that people within could identify, but people from out with could go, oh, my goodness, really. So that was why um, the blood issue makes its way in. That's why the fear of the end makes its way in. The elders are there. All the things that are there are there because they're doing something a little bit more. So they're telling my story, but they're designed to tell the wider story as well. I think that's a really great way of doing that because yeah, it's really you're telling a really personal story, but you're giving a, you're giving the the reader a way in immediately. There's no um, there's no issue to get in there um, and understand. Yeah, and I, and I think you you've really done that thing where um, there's lots of stuff under the surface that yes, probably only ex Jehovah's Witnesses will recognise, um, but that doesn't matter it's a bit like you know when you're a child watching tv with your parents you know there's a lot of jokes you don't get um and there'll be a lot of that in there actually there'll be things that a lot of ex um that are non uh ex jehovah's witnesses won't won't even recognize but um but there's plenty in there for everybody and i think that's really clever the way you've done that um the i love some of the i mean you've used a lot of the catchphrases of Jehovah's Witnesses throughout as as headings, which I absolutely love. And some of them have lovely little double meanings. So, um, you know, you've got, and death will be no more. Another one is a shrewd person accepts correction, which we'll come back to that chapter because it's a particularly horrific one. Um, Men will go from bad to worse. Definitely made me smile um, because that's, you know, obviously you've kind of used that in a in a very interesting way talking about the way that that men have treated you in in those situations and i, I love the way you've used that so yeah i really love that so many of those catchphrases that it's nice to turn tropes. It, yeah turn it back on them they will always Absolutely. mark those things at you so it's nice to send it flying back <laughs> that's exactly what i was trying to do so i spent a long time at so lots of the headings came after trying to like match it but also 
just to kind of fling it back as well. And I felt yeah. so naughty. I was on um, <laughs> JW.org, like trawling through their publications. I did yes. get um, banned for a bit. I think they must have known my IP address. Oh, really? Yeah, because I posted wild. something to Twitter and then I couldn't, suddenly couldn't get on their oh, website. Wow. Um, but yeah, I would just trawl through to find things that had those double meanings. And it, it did become a bit of an obsession as well. But I think it was the kind of, a way of creating these in jokes but also mm. because you're actually the first people to ask about it and it was that if anyone asked as well i could say no these are the things that are written down these are all from publications Absolutely. these are all things that witnesses are constantly subjected to i mean there's been yeah. some corkers recently that i wish mm. i could have used yes. about ambitious mm. wicked woman and things like, <laughs> yes. really sad i didn't get that one in but you know it's yeah. always the future yeah, yeah. Yeah, this was part two. I absolutely love that bit. I thought that was was just brilliant genius. And some of them I'd forgotten until I I read them. And and some of them were like parts of songs that I'd sung at the meeting. Some of them were definitely parts of Bible or New World Translation scriptures, you know. And so I could then remember the bit before, the bit afterwards. And, yeah, that was was great, a great way in uh, for XJWs. so yeah, that that was brilliant. Um, so you you talk about some really difficult things. Um, I, I I can't imagine how difficult that must be to put yourself out there on the page. Um, so so much. I mean, I know you've talked about this a little bit in other interviews and and uh, and discussions that um, you kind of didn't want to do that, but you felt that you had to do that. Um, how how do you find the strength to be able to say, yeah, do you know what this happened to me, and I'm going to talk about it? Um, what what? How did you manage to do that? Um, I think because I wrote it in a room, and I just basically tried to tell myself that no one would read it. At the time that I wrote it, I didn't know if anyone would. I didn't have an agent. I didn't know if it was something that was particularly commercial I didn't know if anyone else would be interested in it but I just had to kind of put those blinkers on and write for myself um I wrote with one other person in mind who I knew would end up reading it because I wanted to make sure it had the kind of um intellectual depth that it needed to have for them but other than that I just wrote thinking no one else is going to read this and so I just felt like I can just put it on the page and that was how I got to that kind of level um, and at times as well, I did sometimes think, well, maybe, you know, I, I also kind of wrote, I didn't write with anyone else in mind, you know, I did do the whole no one else is going to read it, but I also did what would I have wanted to have read if I was reading this book, what, what kind of company did I want at three in the morning when after I'd left? Um, and I think that kind of helped with shaping it as well. It helped with the determination as well. Mm-hmm. I think writing it in, um, you just saying, you know, the phrase like, who did you want, like, sort of company with at three in the morning? I think writing it, I guess, you know, in in the way that some people talk about um, a lot of the academic stuff being really useful, but I think something feeling a bit more like narrative and like a person telling you a story is probably quite like helpful and a bit more soothing in those moments where you are up at three in the morning. So something like that, I think, is that's something that's quite exciting about your book and is really special about it is um it it can feel like you've got someone with you and it's actually a person with you so that's that's something that's really special you've done there that's what I wanted to do because I think at best that's what books do they become this kind of they become a really intimate thing and the experience that you have as a reader is your own experience no two readers are going to have the same reaction or the same emotional connection with something and so to realize that and to be able to think that you can give someone that is something incredible. It's something I've actually found quite overwhelming the last few weeks is this idea that a book is a portable companion. It's this almost piece of magic that you carry around with you and everyone experiences it in a different way. But thinking of it like the, the three in the morning thing was I, you, I'm going to say I used to, I quite often still do read under the covers. I like to kind of feel like I'm in like a wee cave when I'm reading. Um, and I think it was that kind of level of intimacy that I wanted. I wanted it almost to be that like, almost like you were whispering secrets under the covers. That There, there was this world that the reader was allowed into 
for as long as they were in the book. And, and that was a way of kind of allowing the reader to re-experience things that they might have experienced or to understand things that were completely outside of their experience. And I think it's really necessary when you're writing to to let yourself as a writer be quite vulnerable and, and put yourself on the page, whether you're writing fiction or non-fiction, to get to a stage where you feel almost uncomfortable with what you're doing for me is really important. I always say that I like write from my edges. So I can only write if I'm really like the more exhausted I am, weirdly the better my writing experience because I'm kind of at the edge of myself or the more I'm experiencing something quite traumatic or uncomfortable, my writing's better. Whereas if I feel completely comfortable, I just, I can't write anything that's really worth it as well, which is a strange yeah. thing. Well, it's interesting though, because I remember one of my, creative writing tutors being like it needs to be he was like, he's being quite dramatic I think for effect to make it funny but just being like you know it needs to be awful you need to be tearing your hair out and you need to just you know be um we're going to come to this class and you're going to say oh it's uh, I've been doing the, you know and it was making a big story about it being like you know and it's like but I love it <laughs> you know he was going on about it being like this sort of like turmoil with it it's like, and it's great and you're going to love it and you're going to come here and we're going to tear tear things apart and then put them back together and it's going to be great <laughs> Yeah, I think there's just, I mean, I think writing is just the strangest thing to do to yourself. Like, it's really, it's really damaging and it's really positive all at the same time. It's just, and it, it's just this weird process because you can write a paragraph and like how I always think like a day when I'm working is just like so emotionally over the top and traumatic as well because I'll start in the morning and I'll be like yes I can do this and about an hour later I'm like it's all awful it's all terrible <laughs> and then at lunchtime I'm like it's not so terrible and then by like eight o'clock at night again it's terrible I tend to mm -hmm. work quite late at night as well mm -hmm. um very late at night when I'm really obsessed with the project and I think that too helps because when it's dark it's easier to tell secrets and it's easier to kind of get to that really emotional place that I need to get it all out from. Um, yeah, and, and the, the dark helps. Sometimes I can only write when it's dark and I'll literally write by like the light of the laptop screen as well, which is wow. it's quite dramatic, but yeah, <laughs> it is what it is, isn't it? <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Um, I guess it's, it's been nice that you've had that, um, that craft that you've been able to draw on. Um, so obviously we spoke on our last in, uh, time we spoke to you, you talked about your going to university to do your degree in creative writing and that, that really helped you. So I guess um, not everybody needs to have those skills to write a book, but um, it must have been really useful for you to have those skills, to have those, that craft that you could draw on. Um, and I guess, you know, no wonder Jehovah's Witnesses don't want their people to go to university because it gives them those sorts of skills. Mm -hmm. It gives you so many skills. I think it's the critical thinking skills that you encounter yeah. in so many different degrees. So for me, it was the way that like lit theory made me think and the thing, the ability it gave you to unpick things and the yeah. ability to see through narrative and language. And that's one of the key ways that witnesses control you, which is mm. why I wanted to bring in so many of their terms into the book and make sure mm. that I used their language. So I think mm -hmm. for an outsider reading it at times, you know, I speak about my heart condition, like that must just seem like you're what? Yes. Um, because there were times when my editor said to me, like, what's this? We almost at one stage thought of doing like a glossary of terms um, yeah. because it is so over the top. But that's how you're controlled because they make their own language world and you exist within that language world and you don't have the skills to talk to people who exist within the different language world, the one that you're not allowed to join. Um, yeah. And as soon as I realized that, that was a big kind of, oh my goodness moment. Although I'd left, I ha didn't understand the ways that I'd been controlled and manipulated. I think it takes a long time to understand that. And yeah, understanding how language was fundamentally corrupted by them and how all these systems, whether it's communism, whether it's religion, whether it's politics, you know, there's all these different factions that use language in a way that traps people, that limits people, that keeps them within a system that basically becomes almost totalitarian. Um, and yeah. 
that's what uni did for me was it made me go oh hang on this thing that's just our current like our everyday common currency is actually used in this way and I know it must seem so obvious to people outside but it never seemed obvious to me until then it it doesn't though does it because it is just your everyday because language is something you do just take for granted so however you're using it in your group and in your situation you're not gonna until someone points it out you don't really see it do you you don't see it and it's really hard to see something that you're inside as well Mm. and I always think that we're inside language none of us operate outside of language we're in it so yeah you're right you don't you don't see it until you do see it and then you can't unsee it and you just see it everywhere happening Mm -hmm. yeah I mean uh, in some respects it is our primary means of making sense of the world because we we talk our world our social world into existence in many respects so um, if you have control over language then you have control over the way people can understand their reality and make sense of their world so that's why it's so important and that's why yeah all systems of control use it um, in that way um, I wanted... allow... sorry I was just gonna say yeah if you don't allow someone the tools to understand what being controlled is mm-hmm. <laughs> then yeah. you, you you know you don't know do you exactly um, it takes a process Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so smart as well, because the witnesses used to only have their literature and that was hardline enough. And of course, they had the meetings to back it up. But now there's JW Broadcasting, now there's the cartoons, there's all these mm-hmm. other ways in which consistently the same language is used to make sure that people inside cannot start yeah. to understand that there's an outside. Just fully saturated. Yeah, and, and actually what your book does, um, I think, is, and I'm sure you did this on purpose, but um, the way you use the language of the writer in the book, um, we see the child, child, childish way of thinking about meetings, for instance, and about sin and about being naughty and about, um, you know, making Jehovah happy and uh, and all of those things. These are um, these are ways that, again, language is used. But of course, you interpret this as a child. Um, and we, we kind of hear that voice, I think, as as you're you're uh, talking to us about that. Um, and then obviously your voice changes a bit as you get older um, more rebellious, if you like, and more knowing um, your your way that you talk about that changes, and then obviously as you become a woman. So these these track this tracks through the book in in your main chapters, I think, um, and that's really really interesting. We're watching you make sense of your world at different stages of your life. Um, is that kind of the way you you wanted to do it? Absolutely, yes, I did. And it was really important to nail the voice at different times so that I grew up and so that I wasn't too knowing. Um, But also, I didn't want to, so obviously it's first person, present tense, and I didn't want to have reflective passages. Part of the reason I didn't want to have those kind of passages of reflection was because it would take the reader out of the present moment and it would take them out of that voice. And Mm. I think the voice was a really important way of of showing the story and allowing the reader to kind of just stay completely in it. I think it created pace as well. Loads of people have said how quickly they read the book and I think Mm -hmm. that that helps with it. I also think that reflection can be a bit artificial in memoir because it's like, did you really think that, uh, you know, like Mm. at the time, I I, I don't know, it creates a disconnect in my head and I, I just wanted to tell the story. But also, and this is just actually kind of, reoccurred to me I spoke to my editor about this at the time she would say to me what were you thinking when this happened and I would have to try and explain that I wasn't so to have put in reflection would have actually been almost to lie about how it is to be so tightly controlled so Mm. when the elders came up and asked me really intimate questions I wasn't really thinking very much when I was getting married I wasn't thinking like so I really just didn't think for a very long time I did everything I could to stop myself thinking so I had an eating disorder I had like I was like 
almost obsessive compulsive. I was just busy, 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 just doing things all the time, filling my time. Well, your time is filled. That's the way it matters. But yeah, I never kind of had thinking. And then Dieter in the book, when he comes in, he said, he didn't say to me in the book, but he said to me in real life, your thinking apparatus has fallen asleep. And that's exactly it. But I don't think that's uncommon to people who live within those systems. I think that's how we manage to stay there and stay, well, not sane, but vaguely sane, vaguely whole. I, think, I mean, and that's what they kind of want, isn't it? They don't want you thinking about things and considering things because you start to think about it and you start to wonder if uh, you actually uh, like what you're doing and if it's, exactly. yeah is this great because <laughs> if you start thinking you can unpick it really easily it's, it's they are very flimsy belief systems they don't hold up to any kind of scrutiny so the minute you start to think and particularly as a woman you know the elders are allowed to teach but the women are there to listen you're not there to think about it yeah yeah, can we can we dig into that a bit? I mean, obviously, um, that your experience as a woman is something that I've read a number of memoirs from ex Jehovah's Witness women, and I've I've become more and more angry about it. I think over the time, because um, I think you know we we talked before about um, the this the part of the book that talks about the judicial committee. I don't know how much you want to talk about that. Um, here but obviously you put it on paper it's all there um this is the shrewd person accepts correction part of the book which talks about your the way that you are kind of hijacked um and suddenly face this situation where three men come into your home and start asking you completely inappropriate and gross questions i think and um I mean, I don't know what if you've got anything more to say about that, but I think for our listeners who are not aware of judicial committees, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what that process is and um, and how demeaning it is, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's massively demeaning. So the judicial process is that if you've done something that is viewed to be sinful, then three elders will question you about it. I know that it varies between congregation their actual processes I had someone say that the book clearly wasn't true because it had happened in my home um, but I've had other people say that they were questioned in their home I think the official line probably is that the question at the Kingdom Hall but we all know that witnesses official lines are not yeah. a representation of any kind of lived reality uh, yeah. there's there's one public face and then there's what actually happens yeah. uh, so these three men, all significantly older than me as well, which I think adds to how disturbing it was, mm -hmm. came up to my home and asked me deeply intimate questions in the presence of my husband. And that was hugely uncomfortable. He wasn't allowed to leave the room because he was my husband. He was apparently allowed to listen to it all. I had to leave the room, though, at certain stages. And I wasn't allowed to ask why I couldn't stay in the room. And then he had to leave the room later. And the judicial committee, the aim of it is basically that the elders will discern God's will as to if a person's allowed to remain as a witness or not. And they will either disfellowship them, which means that they'll basically be excommunicated, or they will reprove them, which means that they will tell the congregation that something has happened, but not specifically what, and the person's allowed to mm. remain as a witness. Um, that was really, really strange. And I did have a moment, like a flash of doubt when I went back into the room and they said it wasn't unanimous, that hmm. two elders had decided yes and one had decided no. And I had this sudden thought that I had to push away immediately that that's very strange if you're channeling God. Surely you should all get the same answer. Hmm. However... I just, I let that one go. But it was massively demeaning. But the strangest thing was, was that it never occurred to me at the time that I could say no. And it never occurred to me that what they were doing was wrong. I thought that mm. my ability to accept the discipline was flawed 
I thought there was something wrong with me because I didn't want to tell them what had happened. I thought that meant that I wasn't repentant enough. And that's the word they use. So they're there to determine your degree of repentance. But you're not told what that really means. And they almost ask you questions to try and catch you out as to what repentance might be or what it might look like. They don't realize that between you and God, that might be a private act of saying sorry that's a kind of contrition that I made to what I believe to be God at that time they also don't tell you that they have an elders book and the flock don't know about that so they're Mm. judging you according to this book that you've never read so you don't know the terms of your own judgment at least when you're in court you have laws explained to you and you Mm -hmm. can understand how those laws operate and are acting on you. But in a judicial situation, you actually don't know the process. The process isn't explained to you beforehand. I didn't even know it was a judicial committee until they laid the chairs out in front. I wasn't told what it was going to be, simply that the elders were coming to visit. And all of that is fundamentally wrong. Basically, that's the only way there is to describe it. It, It's wrong. It's a violation of people's rights to privacy, to sexual privacy as well. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, I I wrote some things down there. Um, As I was reading it, you know, I went from rage to um, the the lack of, the the whole injustice of the whole thing just um, I found very... um, it made me very angry, you know, mm-hmm. um, you, and the lack of any power in that situation, you know, all the power was with the elders and partly your husband who at the time who managed to kind of, um, ingratiate himself with the elders at that point, really, I think, um, to maneuver the situation. So it was like you on the defensive and him or oh, poor, poor guy, you know, don't worry about your past sins, you know, it's a long time ago sort of thing, but, but let's turn to you, you know, and you were completely out of that loop. Um, yeah. And it just, it just, I think it's one of those areas that, uh, the world does need to know. You're so right about, um, people not knowing the, the rules, uh, or not knowing the process and it, it is completely wrong. And it also begins with prayer, doesn't it? Which I, I noticed you put in the book. Um, what's the significance of that? Um, the sort of unwitting, I'm sure it is unwitting hypocrisy, but imagine inviting God to be in the room when you're doing that to somebody. You're basically yeah. emotionally torturing someone and you're inviting the divine being there to watch. Um, and if, if God did exist or does exist and has any degree of compassion, Why would God want to see that? And why would God um, guide something so clearly inhuman and something that's so clearly unchristian as well? And I think that's partly what I wanted to show with the book is that as soon as any witness falls on what can be seen as times that need Christian help, so as soon as somebody um, struggles as soon as someone has doubts as soon as someone has addiction problems as soon as someone has mental health problems any of those things they're not given compassion they're not shown any values that you could identify with christ they're shown values that are completely the opposite i think i really wanted to show that with the prayer as well obviously it's partly there because that's what happens that's what they do yeah, they pray before everything. And I think what that does is it gives a sort of veneer of legitimacy to the proceedings as well. Well, we God's here now. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it means that there's an even higher power than them. Yeah. So it makes it sound like the questions. The... Yeah, they're not the ones asking the questions. It's God you're answering to now, which means you have to answer those questions. And that was exactly what I thought was, well, Jehovah's here. I've got to answer those questions to him. He's he's led these people here. You don't think, well, maybe it's just all made up, all of a sudden. But it does. It, it lends that kind of, and it just reinforces their power. And it puts you on the back foot. It gives you no power at all. 
makes them feel right and I suppose righteous in what they're doing because they've called in God you know they these men feel very in their rights and you know well we 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 have the ability to do this do you know what I mean we can Mm -hmm. and we should yeah completely that's what it does righteous Mm -hmm. is the right word that you use It, it does make you think you know I always thought the elders were the ultimate authority in everything, even when the authority didn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the other thing that's, uh, the other part of the book, Ali, that's um, that's kind of hard, I think, to read. I'm sure you know what, what I'm talking about. The, um, the, the eating disorder that you describe, um, which um, obviously I'll leave you to, you interpret what that means and how, how that happened maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and and how you put that on the page um but i, I feel like it's linked to the, the lack of power that women have uh, within the organization um but maybe you tell us what, what why that was important to put in your your book oh you're completely right it is linked to a lack of power directly linked to that it was important to put it in partly because it took up such a significant amount of time I felt I couldn't write about my life without putting that in because it's shaped my life since it shaped so much it also kept me alive which I will constantly reiterate that although this thing was killing me it gave me a lot and I felt that it was really important to write about eating disorders in much more of an annoyance way than I had seen done before so when you see it written it's very often either sort of glamorizes them makes them seem quite sexy and it's really not it's really quite boring once you've had an eating disorder for a while and it has stolen your life you're completely under its control and I would spend weeks I spent whole winter actually pretty much in bed doing nothing I was scared to move because my heart rate would go up so significantly so it it takes it strips all of you but before it does that Mm. it lulls you into this friendship and what it gave for me was that it allowed me to not have to go to the meetings anymore it allowed me to stop thinking about life it allowed me to pause and it happened at a time when I probably would have left if I'd carried on the way I was. So I was leading a double life, as the witnesses call it. Hmm. I was, you know, being a normal teenager, I was drinking, I was experimenting with boys, I was wanting to find out more about literature, I was really interested in going to uni. Uh, and then I suddenly got terrified because I realised the cost that would come up and that that would mean that I didn't know anyone from the past and it would mean that I lost my mother as well and I couldn't cope with that so I began to shut down it also and one reviewer noticed this acted in kind of a metaphysical way and I wanted to put that on the page too that it made me feel cleansed it made me feel that like unneed that I developed because eventually all I needed was air and I thought that was amazing and I wanted to bring that to the page that kind of complete insanity of it as well was that I no longer needed anything that was filthy or sinful or bad and so it made me feel like I kind of transcended everything and that actually for once for the first time in my life I felt pure because I hadn't felt pure when I was little either because I had all the bad thoughts about Christmas and birthdays and suddenly I was completely pure because I didn't need anything I didn't even need sugar or fat or nothing it was all gone And that felt really, really good. And I wanted to write about that in all its kind of complexities that, you know, we think of eating disorders as something still predominantly female and predominantly that happens to teenagers. And we don't talk about how complicated they are. We still equate them to weight and appearance. And we have this horrific mortality rate. They are so likely to kill you. I think of all the mental health disorders, an eating disorder is the one that's going to kill you, the most likely to. And with that kind of mortality rate, it shows that we're doing something really, really wrong when it comes to how we talk about them and how we treat them. And I wanted to talk about that and use the book as a way of talking about the fact that treatment doesn't work and the current way that we view them doesn't work either. We need to really start understanding how they're used and I still think of it in terms of a thing that I used I still think I was an addict and that was what I used I needed it 
until I didn't need it. I still need it sometimes, to be honest. I still kind of find myself going back to behaviors that would damage me and I have to pull myself back, just like anyone in recovery has to. It's something you Mm. live with. But yeah, it felt really important to use that section of my life to kind of suddenly talk about something that wasn't just the religion, but definitely correlated to the religion. Because I had that lack of control in my life, but I also had just felt dirty for so long and it was really a way of kind of cleansing myself and then became a way of when I started to recover and look like I was better, I could still be obsessed with it because I still was. So I would be obsessed with how many calories I needed to look recovered. And how, you know, just that whole balance of things. And I've heard that's very common, that a lot of people like function, become kind of like functional anorexics so that they might not look Mm. like they are anymore, which again is a huge problem because if we're only talking about treatment in terms of the weight people are, then we're not actually thinking about how these can ruin people's lives and completely Mm. um, dominate people's lives. And for me, I wanted it to dominate my life when I was a Jehovah's Witness because then it meant that the faith wasn't dominating my life so I think in many ways for many years I put my faith in anorexia rather than God it was my God Um, Mm. which is a really useful way I think of beginning to look at the illness and what holes it might fill in people's lives and what function it might provide for people as well. I think that's one of the, the the ways that the book is so brilliant in that you don't there there isn't a narrator to to make the link between the lessons that you learned as a child about purity and about being bad and all of those things you don't there's no narrator to say yeah this is linked to that but I think I think because it's so well written you get that you know so Mm. the lessons that you learned as a child essentially are coming to fruition all through your life and I think that is such an important thing for all members of X sorry for all X members of cults or high control systems like this to remember that a lot of the lessons that we learned are still kind of mm-hmm. in there and, and are still having an effect on our decisions and our behavior Absolutely. I think that's quite a forgiving way of learning to look at yourself because you can be quite frustrated sometimes thinking, oh, why am I behaving like this? Or why am I behaving like that? Why am I got these kind of recurring patterns? Um, And as soon as you think, well, that's linked to something else, the same as it is in everyone's lives. I think it's a really valuable Mm. lesson for anyone to Mm. realize that, you know, childhood acts forever on you you know it's Mm. always there and our previous patterns are really really hard to unpick another reason I didn't want to have that kind of narrative voice and I'm sure you'll identify with it was because I spent my whole life (laughs) preaching to people and telling people what to think and I just wanted to present the story as it was and let people use their intelligence to make the links themselves because, you know, readers Mm. are intelligent and they're going to make those connections. They don't need me to preach at them. They don't need me to bang them over the head. And that was another reason that I really couldn't do it as well. Obviously, one of the things that we talk about on this podcast a lot is identity and a sense of self. Um, And I think, again, that's another thread that runs through Mm. out your book is this battle to understand yourself and to uh maybe create a new self if you like as well Mm -hmm. and um uh, can you tell us a little bit about that process and and what that's like yeah so i think it's so hard and that's why the prologue begins with in the kingdom hall we are jehovah's witnesses because when you are a jehovah's witness everything is we like this we believe this we do this Mm. it's completely uniform and there's very little room for deviation um and that's really really difficult and really hard to grow up with um and so i always had this sense that myself didn't fit very well into that group and therefore there was something wrong with that self which I suppose is also why I punished it as well and tried Mm. to kind of eradicate Mm. it. And I tried very, very hard to be a good witness. I really wanted to be a good witness because there was no thought really that I could leave and be good at being a worldly person. There was, I need to be good at this. Um, 
I became very competitive with myself and very perfectionistic as well. And then when I left, I realized that like I was completely empty inside. And people talk about like loss of faith giving you this God-shaped hole. But I don't see it like that. I see that God actually turns you into a hollow. These kind of systems make a hole in you. It's not that there was actually that it was really filled. It's just that as soon as there's that absence of the belief system, you realize that you'd never have to develop yourself. I realized that I couldn't call the beliefs that were imposed on me actual beliefs because I'd never thought them through. So were they <laughs> beliefs of mine or were they just something yeah. that I parroted back? The same with morals. Is it a moral if you've had it imposed on you or is it moral to think a proposition through and then arrive at your own thoughts about it? Mm-hmm. Thinking that, that there's all these people who've never thought those thoughts through and just blankly accepted them really, really began to sort of mess with my head and and thinking that that was me. So I spent a long time, really the first year that I left, I didn't know anyone. There was a sort of an absence of social interactions. I was very alone and very isolated. And I remember one Sunday morning walking to the cinema and stopping at a cafe to get black coffee, takeaway coffee. And that feeling like the ultimate rebellion just even having a takeaway coffee on a Sunday morning when I should have been at the meeting and then going to the cinema and just being like I'd always had to watch quite safe films and suddenly I had to think well what films do I like what Mm -hmm. am I actually interested in and it's a really strange process of like self-examination when the self is really scared to come out and I used to go to like second-hand bookshops and just be like didn't even know what to read and the shelves seemed huge because it was just so kind of discombobulating to think it through um and yeah that that took quite a long time I think I found myself through writing towards myself so that first year as well I did like obsessive journaling I wrote obsessively every day really self-absorbed stuff but I needed to do that to like actually work out kind of to maneuver around myself and at that time I started writing as well so I wrote a really awful manuscript um just to kind of just keep me busy because your time is just full when you're a witness um and and there isn't really time to deliberately there's not time to think about who you might be or what you might be but I think that process of arriving at yourself is a really really lengthy process it's taken me a long time and I think what it's shown me as well that like a lot of people tend to think that like the self is fixed as well and have a lot of thoughts about that but I think that you know the very best people are constantly kind of evolving through their life and letting that happen instead of being scared of that process just kind of just you know it's like floating on your back isn't it a little bit in the swimming pool just going right I can let this happen and see where it takes me. Absolutely. And that, that very much aligns with, um, with my views on, on self and identity, you know, it is a, it is a work in progress all through our lives. And we do that through telling stories. We, we make sense of our lives through our, through our storytelling, whether we're a professional writer or not, we are always telling stories about ourselves, our experiences, about how that relates to this and how these other things relate to us. And it's all that process of, making sense and in 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 the research i did for my masters i I found that for some people it's work you know it's career that 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 helps them do that um and i think you know for others it might be a hobby um but i think writing is another one of those tools that that we might use to help us make sense of our lives now um and in a way it's the it's the reason for the podcast, you know, what should I think about mm-hmm. X? You know, it's like, oh, right, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know what I think about that. You know, what should I think about that? Let's, you know, so it's kind of, that's the whole journey, I think, is that, that we make when we leave. And that that goes on forever. And it's exciting as well as daunting, I think. It is. And I think it's really important because I think sometimes if you're not raised in that kind of system, obviously there's two things. If you're raised in that system, you never fully escape and you never learn what you think about things but I think a lot of people 
just don't spend the time to stop and think what they think about mm-hmm. something. And it's actually yeah. a really difficult question because so much is imposed on us by narratives, so much mm. of like our I always think so much of our society is underpinned by Christianity. It's underpinned Mm. quite often by Protestantism as well. And there's this quite um, narrow way of looking at things. And it's a really hard thing when you think, what do I think about that thing? Not what do they think? What am I meant to think? But what do I think? is a really difficult thing and I think it's a really important thing particularly now that you know in social media we see increasingly yeah. the way you're meant to think um, and again that you'll be alert to that I think anyone who's been in a system of being told what to think is very alert to kind of mm-hmm. seeing these different factions emerge but yeah it, it's very difficult to think what you think about the thing. Did you um you know in prep for this, did, did you read any other um stuff that kind of tries to do a similar thing like talking about leaving um sort of religious groups or like these kind of processes and things like that because i know there's like some stuff but i don't know if you, there was anything that you particularly went for no so i deliberately didn't because yeah. i was really scared that i would um either like be like who am i to think that I can write about this and I would be completely sort of like Mm -hmm. um yeah but also I was really worried that I might start somehow replicating something as well Mm -hmm. or that I might yeah so I basically just didn't read anything Mm -hmm. at all when I wrote the early drafts and then the process that you go through when you're trying to get an agent is you have to do what's called comping so you have to find Mm. comparable titles to kind of say where it could sit in the market so at that stage I read educated which I hadn't read beforehand Mm -hmm. so I read educated and I also read one of the best memoirs I've ever read called pre-study by Patricia Lockwood Um, and it's a brilliant memoir about uh, growing up as the daughter of someone who becomes a Catholic priest so and her father is just completely bonkers and she does a similar Mm. thing Stephen that you said I did and I I didn't know I did it and I'm really Mm. quite stunned that I did do it or that you think Mm. I did because if you think I did then it means that on some level I did that's what I'm going to take is she does this thing where she lulls you into her childhood and it's funny whereas mine isn't funny though it's funny at times but she Mm. like tells a lot of jokes about her childhood and you're like oh this is funny I love this memoir it's funny and then in the second half she basically gets you on the floor and just kicks you in the gut it's just over and over and over and it's a brilliant technique and it's a brilliant I would recommend that to anyone interested in kind of faith as well it's a really Mm -hmm. good one if you guys saying that now I think the book that I've read recently oranges are not the only fruit does that as well so it's really funny and then it's like oh it's not anymore (laughs) Um, yeah (laughs) because she is funny yeah she's very funny and she's talking about it from I guess an adult's perspective but the way that children see things um like it's reflective but it's still in the moment I suppose but it's quite the way that children see things in a way that you don't as an adult I suppose um it's interesting that's why I do like what you've done by going through like your the whole sort of from this from the start because you do you do see things differently as you grow um there's an interesting viewpoint from a child that's what I love yeah yeah I really love writing children because Mm -hmm. because they see the world like simultaneously they cut through absolutely everything and they see it Mm -hmm. as it Mm -hmm. is but they also see it as it should be and there's Mm -hmm. that kind of really interesting and they're also really alert to strangeness and they kind Mm. of level everything all at once so they give everything equal importance so they'll be looking at like a snail and that will be the center of the world and then they'll suddenly like ask why it rains or you know they'll ask really big questions and I love that um Mm -hmm. yeah I just love their extrapolate (laughs) yeah I'm constantly making notes on my phone about like things that my particularly my five-year-old says Mm -hmm. because I'm storing them all up because she just says some brilliant things and I'm like yes yes thank you for that line yeah I I think the other thing that that children do that I I mean I remember uh in my childhood I was very um very clear about what was right and wrong because as a child you just you know what's right and wrong because your parents tell you what that mm-hmm. is you know your whoever your guardian is that they'll just tell you that so i remember 
we had a, a council guy. We lived in a council house, and the guy came to uh, fix something in the in the house, and he went out for a cigarette. And I remember going out to him. I must have. It was preschool, so it was. Uh, I was very very young. But I remember going out to him, saying, "Well, you know, why are you smoking?" Um, and he said, uh, "Well, you know, don't don't your mum and dad smoke?" And I said, "No, because they know what's right." Um, you know, and I was just so clear about that. You know, this is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. That's the wrong thing to do. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and you can be like, <laughs> precocious little child. Precocious is the word. So I, <laughs> my mum's uncle had was in the RAF in the war, and he bombed Dresden, and right. presumably had felt awful about it mm. ever since because he wouldn't mm. talk about it. And I found this out and I was about seven or six. Actually, I was younger than that. I was quite young. And I remember a family gathering going up and saying, Uncle Rolo, you're really bad. Jehovah's going to kill you because of what you did. And not understanding why all of the adults just went, oh, and just sort of stared at me because I was like, I've just done the right thing. I have done it. Yeah. This is what they do, though, is they teach these kids these things. It's like surprising. It's said it's like, well, (laughs) yeah. Teach kids here awful it is. Things. Here is the here is the you know the yeah. the the result of of this indoctrination. Absolutely, yeah. you're sat in the meetings, aren't you? Listening to quite all, dramatic all the like, terrible things. The parents that... just let like whoosh over, and then the kids are there like yeah. absorbing it like little sponges. Yeah, oh yeah, and you yeah. know so much, and I think that's also yeah. such a, a safe. You know, now I'm realizing that this is all safeguarding issues and actually serious mm. safeguarding issues, and we laugh about it because. Well, you have to laugh about it and yeah. you can laugh about it and it can be funny, but it's also really terrible. So for instance, when I was a child, when I was younger than my daughter now, and I look at her and she's so little and she's so innocent, I knew about incest. I knew about bestiality. I knew about child abuse and I knew what all these terms meant. And yeah that just kind of boggles my mind as well and that I was constantly so worried that like I'd do something and a demon would come or I'd do something and I'd be molested you know like that just is unreal that that's actually what happens to children and yeah it makes you precocious and it makes you fearful it makes you horribly judgmental there's a brilliant book um, called The Discomfort of Evening And it's by a Dutch writer about these Dutch children who are being raised really strict Christians. And they're Mm -hmm. awful children. Mm -hmm. They are horrible, horrible children. And all the Amazon reviews are about like either five stars from people who get it or one stars from people who are like not nice children. But what she's obviously showing is the fact that this is a really corrupt thing to do to children, that it corrupts children's sense of empathy, that it makes children just really uncomfortable people to be around. And you've got to undo that as well when you're an adult and you leave and you realise that you were quite insufferable and you told people what to believe and you've got to deal with all the guilt of that too. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely right. Yeah, I suppose that my last question is is one that I don't suppose we'll answer today, but um, it, it revolves around what what as a society we should do about groups like this, um, and um, I, I guess writing about your experiences is one of those things. Ali, um, have you got any other thoughts about how society should deal with groups that are clearly doing damage, um, but on the other hand, we need to to think about people's rights and so on any Mm -hmm. thoughts on that so i think the right to religious freedom is hugely important you know that is fundamentally a right that's enshrined in law i think concurrently it's hugely important that people have the right to leave a religion without it being having sanctions imposed on them because that also infringes on their religious freedom so for instance if you leave a group and they shun you or they threaten to kill you or they do all the things that we see many of these groups doing that is also infringing on people's right to religious freedom i think that children also have the right to religious freedom so that you need to think to what level is their parents religion infringing on that how much are children's rights to 
what they should be allowed to consider. Influence, for instance, I don't know what it was like with you, but I wasn't allowed to do RE at school. I wasn't allowed to go to assemblies. So my right to understanding other religions was infringed. I couldn't understand other religions by the publications that Jehovah's Witnesses produced because they were fundamentally biased as well. Yeah. So I think we have to start to think about that. I also think what needs to happen is that there needs to be an understanding of the ways in which religion can harm children and can harm other people. So, for instance, teachers need to be aware what might be happening to children in their care who are Jehovah's Witnesses. Doctors need to be aware that coercion is happening to people who are witnesses in terms of the blood issue. They need to be aware that people aren't freely making decisions. Doctors also need to be aware that witness women don't have the right to abortion. This needs to be something that is known. So there needs to be a way of somehow unpicking this very carefully crafted public face and making sure that caregivers, you know, psychiatrists are aware of what is happening behind the scenes so that they can properly do their job. Because otherwise, you know, teachers have a pastoral responsibility and they, they're not doing their job properly if they don't fully understand the scope of what their job entails at that stage of looking after children who might be vulnerable because we're very good at identifying vulnerable children using different kind of socioeconomic indicators but we would never identify a witness child as being a vulnerable child and they are Mm -hmm. and so that's where we need to start going I think is looking at these safeguarding issues and working out how the gaps in provision can be filled whilst also making sure that you know, the right to religion is is held up. But I think we also need to look at some groups and question the degree to which they are a religion as mm. well. And that needs to be done too. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a really good point. I think to uh, to, to leave it um, for today. I think I think we've covered so much ground. Um, thank you so much for joining us again, Ali. It's been great to watch your uh, your book be. Uh, released and the the success of it already um i think it'll continue to be successful um obviously the next this one was the last days the next one's got to be the new order um (laughs) so i don't know what you think about that um yeah i have a number of exciting things in the pipeline that i will be able to speak about in the future but just now um I'm kind of swore into different levels of secrecy, but yeah, I'm I'm basically really, really busy, and I don't think it's a good idea uh, to have maybe jumped into projects as quickly as I have post publication. But that's that's fine. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. It's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you. Thank Ali you Bell. so much. Thank you. What should I think about? Is an evil sheep production.